Good evening, everyone. You made it through the first day. Good job. I could tell you were all doing really good work. You didn't know you could see. You could see it happening. I want to uh, start or introduce my talk this evening with uh, a few paragraphs that I wrote in an article that came out with uh, a recent book of mine was published. It's about three weeks old, in fact, just a baby. Um, the title of the book is You Are Not Your Fault and Other Revelations. <clears throat> Recently, I heard someone on the radio explaining the new crime of identity theft, and I immediately thought, yes, rob me, please. Take my identity and leave the cash. <laughs> I can regard my entire Buddhist path as a matter of shifting identities, and it all started with me trying to run away from myself, the sentimental histrionic drama of me-ness. The Buddha, Buddha says that the false conceit of I or self is the bane of our existence, and I was indeed relieved when I began to see through the various membranes of personal identity but what really surprised and delighted me is what I saw on the other side. It turns out I am not who I thought I was. I'm much, much more than that. For the most part, we each live in our own story, and it's pretty much the only one we tell, as though we have a scratch in our mental record and the same lines get repeated over and over again. You might have experienced that today a little bit. Uh, about my finances, my friends, my family, my stuff. It's too bad because while each of us is lost in our private drama, we don't notice that we are taking part in grand epics and heroic noble projects. For instance, even while reading email or shopping for socks, we continue to operate as breathing cells in the great body of life on Earth, part of a fascinating multi-billion year experiment in biology and consciousness. Of course, in your own story, you're always the star, but in the big story of life on Earth, you're just a bit player. In fact, an itty-bitty bit player, just a walk-on part. But that is the point. You can disappear into this grand perspective, like walking into a Chinese landscape painting and getting swallowed up by the deep gorges of bamboo forest and eternal sky. You can move out of the personal into increasingly large circles of inclusion, and identity until finally you can point in any direction and say along with the great Indian mystics, thou art that. Identity is at the heart of many spiritual traditions. The Hopi say, you must ask three questions. Where did I come from? Where am I going? What am I? The Hindu Advaita masters keep throwing your question back at you. Who is it that's asking who am I? <laughs> In Zen, they have colorful ways of putting the question. Who is it that's dragging this corpse around? Who is it that's going in and out of these six sense doors? And of course, Socrates said, know thyself. 
The true value of a human being is determined primarily by the measure and the sense in which he or she has attained liberation from the self. Albert Einstein. Liberation from the self. The Buddha said true happiness can only be found by eliminating the false conceit of I or self. <clears throat> Unfortunately, we're all born with a mistaken identity. We believe we are in here and the world is out there. Rarely recognizing, understanding, uh, living as though the world is in here. And in fact, the world is moving through us. The world is moving us. We are the world. A caveat here, almost all life has a sense of self. Even a, a single-celled being extends its little membrane when there's food in the vicinity or retracts it when there's some threat. Uh, it's almost the very definition of life is to have a separate self. The Buddha's great breakthrough was to be able to see through the membranes of, of self-identity and, uh, and understand that we co-arise with all things. I think it's really interesting to uh, realize that it didn't always feel this way to be somebody. The clothing of the self wasn't always this tight. If you went and asked a uh, serf in Europe 300 years ago or a, a nomad wandering through the desert even today and asked them, what do you want to do with your life? They wouldn't know what you were talking about. You do what you're born to do in the family you're born into and into the community you're born into, for the most part. Rollo May, psychologist, quote, Americans cling to the myth of individualism as though it were the only normal way to live, unaware that it was unknown in the Middle Ages and would have been considered psychotic in classical Greece. Some studies have shown that the, the early Greeks thought that all the voices in their heads were the voices of the gods which we, of course, now would label schizophrenia. Of course, we now believe that all the voices in our heads are ours, which is its own delusion. We seem to have come to some extreme of this, uh, this sense of individual self, individual agency here in America uh, in recent years. Here in the land of personalized license plates. We've lost what the anthropologists used to call participation mystique, a sense of belonging to a tribe or being part of nature, something bigger than yourself. We live in what's been called the culture of narcissism. And this extreme individualism is it causes us 
personal suffering, and I, it may be part of the reason why we why we're wrecking such havoc on this planet. How we see ourselves in the scheme of things determines how we will feel about our lives and how we will treat each other and the environment. It's very crucial to creating perhaps the kind of world we would like, a world with less and less suffering. Now, in recent years, we've been telling ourselves a new story with the help of modern science. And the Buddha showed us how we can make our story, our new story, come alive inside each of us. In the Satipatthana Sutta, he instructs us to develop this quality of mindfulness and take it and begin to examine your breath and your body and your emotions and your thoughts and see if it belongs to you. See if you own it. It turns out that mindfulness is the scientific method. It is an attempt to be as objective as possible about yourself as the subject. It's attempting an unbiased, honest, in-your-face look at what's going on. And replicable. I mean, here we are, all are, and having somewhat similar experiences. When I did my first retreat, I was 26 years old or so, I think. I had a good degree from an American university. Um, you know, I was well-educated, but nobody in my culture told me that you could actually develop a part of your own mind and step outside of the flow of phenomena and observe yourself and thereby gain some understanding of how the process works and perhaps not be so lost in it or ruled by it. I thought when I first heard about mindfulness and began practicing, I thought maybe well, it's like being your own therapist, you know? You sit there and you listen to yourself and you kind of nod and uh-huh and what else? And you don't have to pay yourself $150 an hour to do that. Not that it's a pleasant experience. Uh, it can be pretty, pretty uh, disturbing. Um, what, I mean, the first retreat was so disturbing I mean, I had always believed that everything that went on in my mind was mine and self-created. And here I was told, to just pay attention to the breath. Don't intentionally do anything but that. And I started to pay attention to the breath and realized that my mind continued to plan and have fantasies and regrets without consulting me. It would just go on and on. And uh, it would play music. To me, and not uh, New Age meditation music, <laughs> pop songs with good hooks. I won't put any worms in your in your head, but it was insidious. A song would randomly or somehow pop into my head, and uh, if I was 
familiar with the album, as they used to be called, uh, often it would, I would play through the album side and then sometimes flip it over and play the other side. <laughs> I really thought I was going crazy. I couldn't stop. Sometimes a, one of those phrases, one of those earworms would get in my head and it would go on and on and on and on. I'm about it in the 80s now, in my musical taste. Um, so mindfulness, non-judging, non-reactive, present moment awareness. So simple. There are other names that have been used for that quality that we call mindfulness. The higher self, the witness, the one who knows. I like to think of mindfulness as the opposable thumb of consciousness. <laughs> it's a way to reach out and take a hold of reality in a whole different way. Sometimes I think we're, we're taking a evolution into our own hands, but I know that evolution doesn't work like that, but you know that we're developing the next uh, a survivable uh, kind of mind, survivable intelligence. It's, there's an explosion, as you probably know, of mindfulness in our culture. I googled it and there were 50 million references to mindfulness. I have a fantasy that someday that scientists will learn how to tweak our genes and we'll all be born fully mindful. And they'll look back at us kind of patronizing like we look at the apes and they'll say, to get a moment of mindfulness, they had to squeeze their legs into awkward positions and they'll laugh. <laughs> I like to think of this process that we're undertaking with the use of mindfulness as a uh, becoming a kind of naturalist and going into the wilderness of ourself. And, uh, you know, we're taking notes. There's a uh, thought of my mother. There's uh, bear scat. There's, you know, I mean, whatever we see is, is uh, noted with mindfulness, without reacting, without judging. And as we explore, we begin to question our identity. Zen master Dogen says, to study the Dharma is to study the self. To study the self is to know the self. And to know the self is to forget the self. And to forget the self is to be enlightened by all the myriad things of the world. To know the self is to forget the self. There is something to chew on for a few days. I've said before that uh, all Buddha's teaching can be summarized in a knock-knock joke. So the disciples come to the master and they say, knock, knock. and the master answers with the number one spiritual question, who's there? And if you don't get the joke, you have to be reborn over and over again. <laughs> so the Buddha 
gave us these instructions. He said, go and explore yourself and ask the question, this construction self, what is its cause? What is, a, what is its arising, its ancestry, its origin? And it's not like we're re really looking for answers so much as we are creating doubt about the solidity and uh, the definition of this thing we call self. I think I learned a lot about my identity starting with uh, my breath. The first thing that we start to be mindful of, that we choose to use as a stabilizing and uh, an object of focus. At first, you know, I used it as, as that. And then after a while, I began to realize that I'm not breathing, that breath is breathing me. And that it's happening when I don't pay attention to it. It's happening when I do pay attention to it. It's, uh, I mean, if I tried to stop breathing, I would pass out, fall over, and breath would continue. It's like breath wants me to live. It's like life got inside of me and wants me to continue. Descartes should have said, I breathe, therefore I am. Because we can breathe without thinking. We can't think without breathing. So breath became a sign of life. It became a center of my identity. It helped me in this process that I think of as coming down from the story of my life to the fact of my life. I think Rick said something similar the other night uh, that, you know, I guess it had to have been last night. Uh, that that's what, uh, that's a lot of what this process is, is to bring our mind into the body and be with our aliveness, be with our being. I read a recent study about uh, daydreaming among the population, of the, of the populations of several countries. And uh, it found that most adults daydream about a third of their lives. Uh, you know, planning the future, regretting the past, telling stories. Uh, and it goes on continually throughout the day, pretty much almost a third of their lives. And during the periods of daydreaming, they are less happy than when they are focused or engaged in some way. Carl Jung said, if you're depressed, you're too high up in your mind. What uh, I like to do in, in guided meditation sometimes is just have people realize that with every breath they are exchanging nutrients with the plant kingdom. With every breath you become a cell in the great breathing of this planet. In Gaia's breath. We get 16 breaths a minute. 900 an hour, 600 million in a life, an average life. 
you know which million you're, you're working on? Kabir, the great poet, says, feel the breath within the breath. The breath now, for me, it starts to carry the mystery with it. The mystery of life. Similar revelations have, had, uh, have taken hold over the years of doing this practice uh, about identity through mindfulness of the body. My first teacher was S.N. Goenka, who taught the body scan, where you move the body up and down through the, uh, the mind. You move the mind up and down through the body, paying attention to sensations. And after studying with him for a number of months, and doing this practice, it's like the body was dissolved. There was no solidity to it, and it felt, uh, it felt like uh, closer to what it actually was, which was an event rather than a thing. It was, uh, it, it's a powerful practice. But I began to question as I uh, did the body scan, where did this body come from? How did, it, how did I get in here? I mean, I don't remember choosing to be in this body. I don't remember a catalog of choices being offered. You know, would you like eyes in the front and the back? Would you, would you like to swim, fly, or walk as your primary means of locomotion? No, you just get the standard issue, you know, mid-sized mammal, big forebrain, biped. You don't get to choose whether your hunger and sex drive should be manually operated or automatic. <laughs> no, you, you just get this, this, human, this human body. thing that's interesting about the body is that you can begin to connect yourself with the planet, the geology, and the rest of the biology of the planet. If you take your hand and touch your knee or touch your knuckle or rub your upper and lower teeth together a little bit, you can feel the hardness of bone. Your bones are made of calcium, phosphate, silicates, carbon, essentially the clay of the earth mysteriously molded into this skeletal shape. Most of your body's liquid, and most of that liquid has the chemical consistency of the ocean. If you lick your upper lip or, or your wrist, you can sometimes taste the ocean there, that salty sweat. We sweat and cry seawater. We're not just on the earth, we're of the earth. We're like earth sprouts that gained a lot of mobility. <laughs> Thich Nhat Hanh said, once I was a cloud, once I was a rock, this is not poetry, this is science. You can feel... the source of your life's energy. 
by feeling the heat of your body, feeling the heat radiating around the surface of your skin. That heat comes from the fires of the sun, which have been, has been transformed into your living energy. The sun powers everything on this planet, all the life of this planet. So I began to, to understand that this body wasn't necessarily mine. I wanted to take care of it, and I wanted it to bring me pleasure. And, uh, but I didn't create it. I don't own it. It gets old when it's, as it, you know, as it seems to be determined to do. It uh, gets hungry when it wants. It gets horny when it wants, you know. It has a life of its own. The Buddha says, this body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions. For now it should be felt. I'll repeat that. This body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions. For now it should be felt. So through the body scan, through this practice, I also began to pay attention to sensations of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and how much my life is driven by craving desire for pleasant and um, my fear, aversion for unpleasant. It's what runs the world, basically. But I had never been up close, you know, and had it looking at me in the face and saw how much, my how often, how many desires I have in a day. Or how many desires move through me in a day. Isn't it a shock? I mean, I remember I'd sit there, my leg was hurting, I hated it. I, I wanted to move, but I know that it wouldn't really solve anything. I want, so I wanted the bell to ring. Then the bell rang, and then I was, you know, I was happy for about a half a second until I started to get up, and it was a walking period was coming. So, well, maybe I'll go back to my room and look at my socks and my stuff. <laughs> and just... Spend, spend a few hours and count. See if you can count how many desires you have and how many uh, little aversion attacks, multiple hindrance attacks, we call them. But this, uh, this process of getting pulled around by the universe and, uh, you know, wanting the good, wanting the sweet and the pleasant and not wanting the unpleasant. Uh, basic instincts, primal instincts, long before Freud or Darwin, the Buddha understood them and called them underlying tendencies. When we begin to see all that reactivity going on and those desires arising and realize that they're not ours, that they're humanities, that they're universal, it starts to take uh, some of its hold over us, take, take it away. We begin to depersonalize 
this condition that we're all in, the human condition. This is a neuroscientist, Melvin Connor. The motivational portions of the brain, particularly the hypothalamus, have characteristics relevant to the apparent chronic nature of human dissatisfaction. Experiments suggest that our chronic internal state will be a vague mixture of anxiety and desire, best described by the phrase, I want, spoken with or without an object for the verb. Underlying tendencies. The mind really has no shame. It's a great haiku by Kobayashi Isa. I'm in Kyoto, yet I long for Kyoto. Oh, bird of time. <laughs> but mindfulness begins to reveal emotions natural occurrences coming at various times in our life. When we see them clearly, we don't have to take them quite so personally. We inherit a limbic system. It was, it's been around for about 200 million years. And our thinking brain, our human brain, has been around for a couple hundred thousand years. We call it the neocortex, the new part of the brain. Actually, one scientist uh, in, the, in the 1960s, forget his name now, he said, we, we don't have a brain, we have three brains. We have a fully functioning reptilian brain and a fully functioning mammalian brain and the new human brain or neocortex. And there's growing research and understanding that <clears throat> we use the new human brain mostly to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains. <laughs> that, that we're not so much rational animals as we are rationalizing animals. <laughs> but as we become aware of how emotions move through us, our identity begins to shift and we begin to realize our species self. Gain what I call evolutionary wisdom. This is the Buddha. Thus any feeling whatsoever, past, future or present, internal or external, blatant or subtle, common or sublime, far or near, every feeling is to be seen as it actually is with right understanding. This is not mine. This is not myself. This is not what I am. And the instructions in the Satipatthana Sutra for dealing with the difficult uh, mind states, no moral judgment from the Buddha. Just be aware, a meditator knows a lustful mind as lustful, a mind free from lust as free from lust, a hating mind as hating, a mind free from hate as free from hate. Becoming aware is the key. The 
Tibetans have some interesting practices where they arouse difficult emotions so they can learn how to be with them with a certain degree of presence and equanimity. Uh, there's a practice called chod, where you imagine your worst demons of, of emotional demons and thought demons, and you invite them to come and, and uh, fill themselves with your essence, to basically devour you. And uh, the idea is to get you familiar with these difficult states and then learn how to practice with them. There's, uh, this is from the flight of the Garuda. At one time or another, all of you have been injured by others. Consciously recollect in detail how others have wrongfully accused you and victimized you, humiliating and grinding you into the ground, and how you were shamed and mortified. Brood on these things, letting hatred arise, and as it arises, look directly at its essence, at hatred itself, then discover firstly where the hatred comes from, secondly where it is now, and finally where it goes to. Look carefully for its color and shape and any other characteristics. Then all you lovers, think of the beautiful man or woman in your heart. You gluttons, consider the food you crave, meat, cake, or fruit. You strutting peacocks, recall and dwell on the clothes you like to wear. You avaricious traders, think about the form of wealth you desire, horses, jewelry, or cash. Carefully considering, the, considering these matters, allow desire to arise, and when it arises, look directly at its essence, at the greedy and lustful self. Then discover, firstly, where it comes from, where it is now, finally, where it goes to. This is not hiding from anything. This is what the Buddha wants us to do. Face it all. Learn how to be present with it. Understand that this is not Yours, this is the human condition. As you begin to see that, your compassion increases for others. You know that we're all struggling with the same 10,000 joys, 10,000 sorrows. I think perhaps the most profound shift over the years uh, of my meditation practice has been in my relationship to my thinking mind. We're still friends. In fact, we live together. (laughs) But we are no longer codependent. I think I realized at some point that my Dharma practice started because I realized that my mind had a thinking problem. As a heavy thinker, start thinking early in the morning, <laughs> thinking in the afternoon, had to have a couple thoughts before I went to bed at night. <laughs> I had bought into the whole story that uh, these were all mine and uh, completely identified with thoughts. I was a true believer. Our culture is fixated on thinking, reason, intellect. That's what we get graded on in school. It's a little ironic. I spent the first half of my life learning how to think. 
and I've been spending the second half of my life trying to ignore my thoughts. <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> I don't want to give impression that thoughts are bad. You give up thinking at your own risk. And it's a great survival tool. In meditation, we don't want to get rid of our thoughts. What we want to do is expose the mind to itself. We're not looking at the content of the thoughts so much as we're looking at the process and where they come from and questioning that. Thinking is our genius as a species. We make up these complex symbols that carry meaning, information, directions, allows us to share knowledge with each other and pass it on to next generation. Hold that thought. But as a species, we seem to have grown to believe that our thinking minds make us superior to the rest of creation. This is Charlie Darwin from his secret notebooks. Why is thought, which is a secretion of the brain, deemed to be so much more wonderful than, say, gravity, which is a property of matter? It is only our arrogance, our admiration of ourselves. And Stephen Jay Gould says, an octopus doesn't go around being proud of its eight arms. <laughs> what they're saying is that uh, this thinking thing is just a, a, an adaptation, learn, teaching us how to be in the world, or aiding us in being in the world and judging things through time, and gives us lots of uh, advantages. Buddha saw the thinking mind as a sixth sense, uh, a way of reading and interpreting the world, but no, no better or, or more important than sight, sound. I think it can be very useful to, to look at your thinking and reflect on how many of your thoughts have something to do with your survival, including your place in the pecking order, which is a place where many of our thoughts go to and, and arise from. But to somehow uh, understand that that's what this tool is, this beautiful, amazing tool is about. It's about trying to plan for the future. It's about going over the past so we don't make the same mistake twice. You've got to love it. You know, you've got to bow to it at the same time as you're learning to be able to let go of it or to lessen its impact. So as we meditate, as we bring mindfulness to explore who we really are, we start to see what the Buddha was talking about. This is not I, this is not me, this is not mine. I like to think of him saying, this is ours. Evolving together, you know, that's, we're all, we're all given pretty much the same equipment. 
the same condition, the same, the same life. Circumstances may be different. The names may have been changed. So in the story, if we see ourselves in this story, this new story, we're no longer individuals meditating for ourselves, but we're members of a particular species at a moment of time, collectively attempting to awaken. And we're, ba- we're a baby species. I think that's really important to remember as you struggle with your mind. Uh, just 2,500 years ago, we had Socrates in Greece and the Buddha in India and Lao Tzu in China. It was the axial age. There was a sudden, uh, suddenly a new understanding, a new way to understand ourselves in the world. 2,500 years ago is a blink of a blink of an eye in any kind of evolutionary uh, line of, uh, of thought. And there were millions of generations of dinosaurs, millions of generations of mammals before humans came along. We should not be tried as adults, you know? We are... <laughs> we're doing the best we can. Thich Nhat Hanh says, the next Buddha will be a Sangha. Will be a community. Anyway, thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our collective awakening. And of course, all these, all of this doesn't mean that the mystery has been solved. It still remains a mystery. Who am I? Mm-hmm. Why, am, why is there a me? Why is there a universe? I don't want you to think about that. <laughs> just, just throwing it out. <laughs> My favorite mudra movement of the, uh, of the Buddha is after he became enlightened and he was sitting under the tree and Mara comes by, the evil Mara, and says, what gives you the right to be enlightened? And the Buddha reaches down and touches the earth. That, you know, this earth has grown this, this mind, this consciousness, and uh, that's what gives me the right and the authority to become free. So it's possible. It's possible for all of us. Let's sit for a minute or two.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.